Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olin Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Lucy Hallett-Hughes about her new biography, entitled The Pike, Gabriel D'Annunzio, Poet, Seducer, and Preacher of War. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if we could begin with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm. this is my third book, My Book on D'Annunzio, and the Two previous books were um, respectively on Cleopatra and on hero worship, and that one began with Achilles, so it started you know, with the Trojan War and came right up into the 20th century. And these may seem like you know, three very different areas of subject matter, three very different books, but to me they all feel like parts, almost like a trilogy in that in each of them I've been investigating the same area of subject matter, which is basically the, the place where actual historical events intersect with propaganda, publicity, and fantasy. So what drew you to Gabriel D'Annunzio as a biographical subject? Well, he's the most fantastic um, subject for a biographer, a real gift. He's a terrifically flamboyant character. He had a very active love life. He was a celebrity from um, from when he was in his teens, while he was still a, a 16-year-old at a boarding school. He um, perpetrated the most sort of bold and outrageous, perhaps of all the great publicity stunts of his life, and there were many. When he published, he just published his first volume of first, and he was looking for better publicity for his second volume and so he contact he sent an anonymous telegram to the editor of a journal in Florence informing the editor of the tragic death in a riding accident of that brilliant prodigy himself Gabriele Benozzi and that was really the, the editor fell for it ran the story it was picked up and there were pieces in journals all over Italy lamenting the loss of this brilliant young poet who was who might, had he only been granted time, have changed the course of Italian literature, and so on and so forth. And Donatio, remember he was still a schoolboy at this point, had the kind of had the nerve to wait for well over a week before he sent a second telegram, and um, this time signed with his name. Uh, reproaching the editor for having caused him such, causing himself, Donatio, such terrible distress. Uh, so that was, you know, his first publicity stunt, and it did make him famous. It worked. And from thence forward, for the next sort of 40 years or so, he was always in the public eye, which meant that he, not, that he was being written about both in the press, but also by the many, many people who met him. He was a very visible figure on the kind of the, the public scene, both um, you know, in literary circles and also once he became involved in politics in midlife in sort of political circles. And so I was able to draw on descriptions of him and accounts of meeting him 
written by an enormous variety of his contemporaries. When I started writing about Denizio, I hadn't really expected to find myself quoting mm. you know, the dancer Isadora Duncan, the writer Franz Kafka. You know, it's a huge range of, of witness I was able to draw on. <laughs> so, um, I, <laughs> stop me when I'm talking too much. But he, I mean, he's a terrific subject because um, he's a writer, and of course, people like writing biographies of writers because. It's possible to know what a writer is thinking because you know one has their words on paper. But the trouble with uh, literary biography is that an awful lot of writers spend their lives sitting alone and silent in a study, <laughs> doing not very much. Uh, but Danunzio was both a very prolific and celebrated author, and also a kind of actor on the world stage. He you know he took his ideas out of the library and acted on and for the second half of his life. He used to refer to his his early persona as an author as being a mere poet. And you know, after after midlife he ceased ceased to be a mere poet and became a kind of national hero, an aviator, a man of war, and ultimately the dictator of his own little city state when he annexed the town of Fiume in Croatia. So you, you mentioned the contemporary accounts, um, which brings us to my next question, which is what sources were most helpful to you as you were doing your research? Well, uh, by far and away, the richest resource was uh, Donutz's own notebooks. He kept a notebook with him at all times and used it in circumstances where sometimes, you know, you're looking at notebooks, or you know, I was when, when I was researching this book, I think, you know, how how did you get the opportunity to write this down? I mean, I'm thinking, obviously, of, of some of the occasions when he's um, you know, noting what he's doing in bed with one of his many, many lovers. Uh, but also, and he was a very daring aviator. He flew, he went up in his tiny, flimsy little early flying machines. And to call them planes comes up the wrong kind of image. They weren't the kind of nice, safe or safe fish uh, metal tubes with wings that we're accustomed, you know, we're familiar with now. In Donizio's day, in early 20th century, the, what passed for aeroplanes really looked to our eye more like sort of children's kites and these very flimsy contraptions made of cloth and, and cane you know, and a little bit of wire. And he would go up in those planes during World War One. He wasn't. He never learned to pilot himself. He was always the, the passenger, come observer, come bombardier, and he'd be dropping bombs on Austrian-occupied towns. But what seemed to him more important, he would be dropping pamphlets. And for him, uh, writing was a martial art. He used words as instruments of war. And but even while he was doing that, you know, in these terrifying circumstances. So many of his fellow aviators died. It's really astonishing that he survived the war. But he would be making notes. And his notebooks survive. You know, he would be looking down, of course. He was looking down on the world from an angle from which very few human beings had yet seen it. And he was very aware of that. And he wanted to be the first person to describe the earth from the air. And so there he'd be, up in, up in his little wobbly machine, really dicing with death. And 
making notes in his notebook about, you know, finding similes to describe the way a sort of a river through a plane looks like a ribbon through a woman's hair, or or so forth. And so his notebooks were an incredibly rich source of information for me. Um, He was a very prolific writer, and basically I would use everything he wrote but with um, mounting suspicion, as it were. I think the notebooks are pretty reliable. Once they keep, once he starts using material from the notebooks in his letters, then he's already kind of you know jazzing things up to make himself look better. Mm. And then, of course, a lot of that material appear, reappears in his poems or his novels. And um, he drew on his his own experience very directly, so that in in some of his novels you get quoted word for word love letters that he'd written to his real life mistresses. So um, there's this huge body of writing, some of it published, some of it private notes, which gave me the the ability to really know him from the inside out. Mm -hmm. So the pike is not structured along a linear narrative, but rather it seems to sort of glide back and forth through the life. Can you discuss how the book is structured and also how you settled upon this structure as the most appropriate for the story that you're telling? Yes. Um, I think that I, I read a great deal of fiction, and it seems to me that writers of nonfiction should read more fiction, actually, <laughs> because novels are now... Um, very often um, structured in a way which departs from straightforward beginning-to-end chronology, whereas there are far too many biographies which, you know, begin with the birth and end of the death, and it's a pretty um, dull and anyway um, somehow mendacious way of describing a life. I mean, people's lives don't go along at a steady pace. We've all had the experience of having days which were so significant and important to us that they seemed to, you know, be of more value or more significant than whole years or decades even. And so the pace of my book tried to reflect that. I and mean, sometimes I pulled back and I, I often find myself in thinking about how I was going to approach my subjects thinking a bit like a filmmaker. You know, sometimes you want to be in close up and in real time. And sometimes you, you want to pull back and have a you know have a very very wide angle and cover a whole era a whole a whole world so that you're writing not just about the person who is your subject but also kind of the, the culture the society he inhabited. So you know it goes it goes from close up to to far distance. It goes from very fast to to very slow and sometimes I slow right down and record entire conversations as it were in real time and then sometimes I'm fast forwarding through a decade but uh, I had a particular problem uh, which I needed to address by you know, structuring the book accordingly which was that I was writing about somebody who is not very well known to English speaking readers and so I needed to grab the readers right away. I mean, in a sense, I needed to tell the whole story in the first paragraph. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted to, I had to be able to say, look, this 
person is interesting for this, that, and the other reason. This is why you've got to stick with me. And so, um, really, the first chapter of the book, after a sort of introductory piece, is that the entire story of his life told from 19 different points of view. <laughs> I, as I say, he was much written about by his contemporaries. Mm. And so I was able, in that, first, that early chapter, to to tell the entire story of his life in little snapshots, you know, one or two paragraphs, um, which I call sightings, so, you know, glimpses of him at different stages of his career. And once you've read that section, you know who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen him from all angles. You know, it's like a sort of hologram that you could walk around. You know, you've seen him as viewed from, from many different points of view. And you've also got him um, at, at different sort of crucial moments in his in his trajectory. So that was, you know, that was one of the solutions mm-hmm. I found. But all the way through the book, actually, I was I was having to experiment with this in order to find appropriate ways to describe this this very 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 varied life. I mean. There's a significant patch of his life, a very important eight years in the middle of his life, when he did all of his best literary work, when he was living with his lover, the great actress Eleonora Duza, in Cessignano, just outside Florence. And he was working very hard indeed, and he saw very few people, and he, you know, this was when he was acting like most writers do, just sitting quietly in his study day after day after day, week after week after week. And, you know, that doesn't make for, a, <laughs> for an exciting narrative. So I, that's, for that period, again, I just gave little glimpses of him, sometimes of what was going through his head by writing about his writing, and sometimes um, you know, engaging with his few sources out into the public world. But then, for instance, when we get to in the post-war period, which is a time of great upheaval in Italy in 1918 to 1919, when the, the, the people who would later be calling themselves fascists mm-hmm. and the socialists were fighting it out, it was a, pretty much of a war was going on. And for that, you know, I had a completely different narrative style, which was, I suppose more more like a, a conventional history when I sort of pulled right back from Donatio and placed him in the uh, events of his time and give a more connected narrative of what was going on, which was God knows complicated enough without my complicating it by <laughs> fancy narrative techniques. <laughs> So this is going to build upon what you were just talking about, because as you mentioned, this is someone that a lot of English speaking listeners probably won't be familiar with. So could you, it's also kind of an unfair question, but could you give us a quick introduction of who he was and also the broader cultural significance um, as regards the rise of fascism and in the, li- the life in Italy? Yes. Well, Donatio was the greatest Italian poet since... And... He was you know, a very brilliant author and a very prolific one, much admired um, by his contemporaries, perhaps more importantly by generation, the kind of modernist writers like Henry James, Ernest Hemingway, um, all 
spoke well of him and thought very highly of him. He was a seriously important author. So that's one side of his life. And in the English-speaking world, we're a bit ignorant because his work is very hard to translate. It's, it's, um, his best poetry depends very heavily on sort of sort of the music of sound and rhythm, which, you know, there are some adequate translations which kind of give you the meaning, but they don't really convey the genius. But he was huge, hugely admired by his contemporaries across across Europe and, and you know, indeed. Um, so that's one side of his life. But he, he was also a kind of, um, he was a celebrity in the first days of the mass media. Um, in his life, he was born in 1863 and died in 1938. And in the late 19th century, printing was um, cheaper and more efficient than it had ever been before. And there was a huge upsurge in the number of, of journals, newspapers springing up all over the place. And there were there were gossip columns, and indeed, Denuncio, in his early twenties, was himself a gossip columnist. He was very, very aware of the way that um, life can be transmuted into copy. He gets one of his one of his fictional heroes in his first novel is told, "You must live your life. You must make your life as you make a work of art." And Denuncio was a terrific self-promoter and self-publicist. So he um, he had this very exciting love life, and and he made sure that it was actually very public. You know, he, he was always tipping off reporters. He was the one who told the press when he was about to elope with an 18-year-old duke's daughter when he himself was barely 20. And he stayed with Maria, as she was called, Maria de Gallese, his wife, long enough to have three little boys and then abandoned wife and sons and began on a long series of love affairs, which made him the kind of darling of the, of the gossip columns. And his most celebrated love affair being with the great actress Eleonora Duza. And the two of them together were both um, professional partners. You know, he wrote plays and she performed them. But they were also the kind of the celebrity couple of that era. So there's, you know, there's the literature, there's the love life. Um, but then in the middle of his life, in, in his 40s, he went into Parliament and he began to be very politically active and becoming gradually the voice of the sort of Italian nationalist right. He called himself the voice of my race, and he saw himself as being the kind of the figurehead of a movement which would, um, which would, which would make a new and greater Italy. Italy had, it was you know, first unified, became a, a free and independent nation in 1870 when Donatio was seven years old. So the the Risorgimento, the Italian nationalist liberation movement, was the background to Donatio's childhood. And he, he felt very strongly that um, the new nation needed a new culture and a new literature. And so in writing poetry, even when he was writing his early verse, which was all sort of neoclassical stuff about sort of nymphs and centaurs, he was, he was in his own eyes doing something for the nation. His poetry was sort of its, its creation was a, was a patriotic act because Italy needed 
this poetry to prove itself to be a, a great and cultured nation. And then later on, um, he started to think that what Italy needed even more than poetry was to prove itself as a warlike nation, as a nation capable of acts of military heroism. And as it, as the kind of, you know, the Nazi's life went on and as the 19th century sort of moved into the early 20th century, his, um, his public rhetoric became more and more bloodthirsty and he, he started using phrases like baptism of blood or a cleansing war. And Marinetti, who was a generation younger than Donizio, Marinetti, the, the spokesman for futurism, talked about war being um, the only hygiene. And, but this was an idea that Donizio had actually been voicing since the 1890s the idea that somehow peacetime society was corrupt and compromised, that the world was being taken over by tradesmen and, you know, all the kind of the noble warrior uh, qualities that Donatia admired needed to be revived. And what was needed was a jolly good character-building war. And uh, at this point, I, I hastily need to say that there are a lot of biographers who only want to write about people whom they admire or love or anyway people with whom they agree whereas to me the bad guys seem every bit as interesting as the good ones <laughs> and in reading about Donizio and especially his his warmongering his his bloodthirsty oratory which he was delivering in the years up to and during the first world war i repeatedly find myself thinking how can you think that? This is so appalling. How can you say that? And it seemed to me that actually that question, how can you think that, is rather an interesting one, mm -hmm. particularly because Donizio was not, you know, he's not a lone psychopath. There were a great many people um, all across the West and in the States who felt the same way in the years up to the, the First World War. Mm -hmm. Time to go back. <laughs> um, so, as you mentioned, the Italy of today is a fairly recent invention. So, what was the Italy of D'Annunzio's day like? Well, when D'Annunzio was born in 1863, the Risorgimento had, you know, just begun. In but before that, Italy had been divided into a lot of little states. There were the, and the comparatively large ones included the, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, based on Naples, which was ruled by a French dynasty, the Bourbon. And then in the north, there was um, the Kingdom of, of Savoy, um, or Piedmont, as it's sometimes known, which was, um, was a, the, the monarchs of Savoy were, were Italian, and so eventually they would become the kings of all Italy at the end of the Risorgimento. But then in the middle of, of, of the Italian peninsula, there were the papal states, which of course were the, you know, the temporal power of the, the Pope based in Rome, and very much through the 19th century under French influence. And then the Austrians controlled Venice and Milan, and there were Austrian sort of small states throughout Italy 
some of these these states were tiny. They would be uh, not so much states as estates, you know, that mm-hmm. some duke would just own a big chunk of country and would run it as his own his own little fiefdom. So there were you know there were principalities and dukedoms, all of them with sort of complicated allegiances to the other European powers, whether mostly France or Austria. So it was it was a very, very complicated situation, um, which eventually was resolved back when the, basically the, the, the French withdrew from supporting the Pope and the papal powers became a part of of Italy, which was ruled by the kings who had been kings of Savoy, the first king of Italy being Victor Emmanuel. And but it's a very incomplete process. I mean, there are still people in Italy now who are saying, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> and since the, the kingdom of Savoy in the north of Italy effectively took over what had been the other you know, separate separate states of Italy, there's still a lot of resentment in southern Italy about that still kind of feeling that actually, you know, rather than joyfully becoming a part of the United Italy, they've simply been taken over by their northern neighbours. So what do you see as Denunzio's legacy, both in Italy and in the broader history? Sorry, that was the question. Um, what do you see as Denunzio's legacy, both to the Italian nation and also just in 20th century history? Well, and the reason I wanted to write about Denunzio is that he had such an important influence on the growth of the movement, which subsequently took the name of fascism. And so, and I wanted to trace the way that fascism developed in a in a manner that seemed to me hadn't often been done before. I mean, there are a lot of histories which look at the economic circumstances and the kind of social upheaval occasioned by the, the First World War, which left Europe in a very chaotic state. And in that period of, um, you know, of, of economic hardship and political upheaval, fascism seems to have just sort of flourished like a kind of, you know, like a weed flourishing in a, in a ruin, as it were. And so I think a lot of people have seen fascism as being kind of a monstrous freak, which grew out of those very special circumstances when Europe was, you know, had been devastated by war. But it appeared to me very clear that that wasn't the case, that actually fascism grew organically out of various sort of intellectual, political, um, cultural trends, which you can easily trace all the way back to romanticism. And there are ideas like, um, you know, the cult of beauty and the, the notion that the individual was to be valued more highly than the kind of social group. And... Mm-hmm. Um, romantic ideas about nationalism and the independence of, of nations. And these ideas, when they're articulated by Byron or Shelley or Keats, all of whom Dennis admired very much, he was a great fan of the English romantics. Um, you know, they sound lovely. And when Keats says truth is beauty, beauty is truth, that's all you need to know. Well, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a baffling concept that actually I've always been puzzled by. I'm not sure what Keith meant by it. But 
when you start to trace that notion down through the 19th century, through the, the aesthetes and the decadence, and you get to the nuncios, you find that actually what is being said is that beauty or style are more important than than human kindness or human happiness or human rights. And at that point, it begins to look like a much more questionable notion. <laughs> and so in the same way, um, I was able to, in writing about Denuncio, who, as I say, is a you know, fabulously flamboyant, colourful character with a very, very busy life, uh, I was able to use the narrative of his life, which is, you know, exciting and sort of incident and drama, to also explore something more, uh, and you know, perhaps more important, which is this, this complex, sort of stream of, of thought and feeling which w- runs through Western culture uh, and which begins looking innocuous or charming but ends with you know, brutality and thuggery and all the bombastism. Mm-hmm. So as his biographer, do you have a favourite story of Denunzio? <laughs> a favourite story? Well, of course, you know, the big drama of his life was came in 1919 when um, Europe was being carved up by the peacemakers at the, in the Paris peace talks at the end of the war. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had, had collapsed in the last months of the war, and the uh, Allied had, had to stay trying to decide who would get what in you know, assigning the different territories of the, the dead empire to the, the victorious past. And then it too, along with a lot of other Italian nationalists, actually reckoned that Italy wasn't getting its fair share, and so um, he took the law into his own hands, got together a, a gang of deserters from the Italian army, just over 200 men, and marched into this town called Fiume, which is now called Rieca, it's in Croatia, and declared that he was annexing it to Italy. Italy didn't want it. Um, in fact, you know, this whole action of donuts was very, very embarrassing for the Italian negotiators in Paris. And so donuts effectively said, okay, if you don't want it, I'll have it myself, (laughs) and ran the place as his own little city-state for over a year, during which it became, I I guess, the most interesting place on earth. I mean, there's a lot of, um, there are the parallels between Fiume and Danuzio and San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury in the 1960s Summer of Love in that it was a place where, you know, free love and drugs were, um, you know, were rife. And people, anyone who was fed up with the status quo, who was tired out with worn-out old political institutions and wanting to start a brave new world, they came to Fiume. You know, there were Dadaists there and futurists and communists. And Lenin announced that Denuncio was the only true revolutionary in Europe and sent him a little pot of caviar as a tribute. And meanwhile, of course, there were a lot of the people who would, a year or two later, start calling themselves fascists. Mm-hmm. And all the time, all the time that Clementia was there, Fiume was in a state of kind of perpetual excitement. Uh, one one uh, a Belgian poet who was, was there described it as being as exciting every day in Fiume as Paris is on the 14th of July. 
and there were things like fireworks, there were processions, there were parades. Denetsu understood the modern political process in a way that very few of his contemporaries did, in that he understood that as, a, um, as normal people got the vote, as democracy was spreading, you had to take the people with you. And so in order to get power and influence, you had to provide entertainment. So uh, he, he understood the kind of the theater of politics. And in Fiume, you know, there were constantly bands playing, school children dancing through the streets. Um, Donatio's own elite guard, who wore a very um, smart uniform, black shirts, which would soon be acquiring a more sinister reputation all over Italy. And mm. uh, they were processed through the streets carrying branches of, of branches of, of blossom that they'd torn down off the apple trees in the orchards around the town. And there were fireworks and there were parties and it was um, it was a sort of, you know, a non stop party which went on for about fifteen months. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Um, thank you so much for talking with us today about the Pike. Do you have any idea who you're going to be writing about next? Well, I'm currently writing a novel, uh-huh. uh, but I think that um, my next biographical book might be about the first Duke of Buckingham, who was um, the favourite of the homosexual King James I of England. And, and Buckingham, he there are affinities between him and Dantier, I mean, that Buckingham was a great showman. He was a great beauty, and he used his his physical beauty uh, to to acquire political power. And I think again, I'm writing about the kind of the interface between real power and appearances. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I've been talking today with Lucy Hallett Hughes about her new biography, The Pike. I'm Olay Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.